Greetings in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. This is Brother James from True Church, False Church. Today I want to deal with a topic that has been brewing deep within me for quite some time. As we look at the church in the West, United Kingdom, Canada, United States, but I'm really speaking about the church in the United States of America because that's where I live and that's my concern. Um, my concern is for the global body, but I'm not... Um, an international person. I don't speak multiple languages. I don't have connections throughout the world. Um, I am an American. I am a Western Christian. I have been a Christian for the past 19 years. And I started this website quite some time ago, uh, maybe eight, ten years ago, because I saw the difference between biblical Christianity and Western Christianity hence the term true church false church and when i make that statement true church false church if you read if you're well read if you read people like aw tozer um, a lot of puritans you will find that term true church or true christianity used quite often and well there's always been a false church and a true church I think we are coming to a climax with the false church and obviously the true church as well. And my deepest concern has always been for the lost, but the ones that think they're saved when they're not saved. That is probably the grossest epidemic in Western Christianity is so many people have been deceived in thinking that because they said a prayer or because they attend a church or because they're part of a particular Christian group they think they're saved this is true of Roman Catholics this is true of Jehovah's Witnesses this is true of Mormons which I would consider those three groups to be cults and not Christians, definitely the Roman Catholic Church, a false expression of Christianity for sure. Um, but I think one of the biggest problems that we see in Christianity in the West is so many people are told that if they just say a simple prayer, they're okay. And there's nothing else they have to do. And many people are left ill-prepared for true Christianity. They don't know what to do with the words of Jesus um, and they obviously are blinded to the vast majority of the words of the and the writings of the Apostles. And that's probably because everything's explained away or they're in intoxicated with a false understanding of salvation. And it is my desire to go through the scriptures in this study to show each and every individual that would listen to this message that salvation is the beginning process. It is something that we could have never done. It's a process that we could not create on our own. We couldn't do enough good works to undo all of our sins, even if we only had one sin against a holy and perfect and righteous God, we couldn't do enough good to undo that one sin. 
we all need the Lord Jesus Christ. We all need the shed blood of Jesus to wash us and cleanse us. But we also need the life of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit living in us. We need to abide in Jesus. We have to come to the, to the terms and, 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 and accept that we can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. But once we become Christians, once we have been born again, once we have been cleansed of our old sins and we have been uh, regenerated with the Holy Spirit of the living God, we have a responsibility as Christians, as sons and daughters of God. We have a responsibility. And that is something that is so clear from Genesis to Revelations. Adam and Eve had a responsibility it was by the love and the mercy and the grace of God, a God who desires fellowship, and, and he created Adam and Eve. He brought them into existence. He gave them life. But their responsibility was not to eat from the tree of good and evil. That was their responsibility. They were to fight against themselves, their own temptations. They were to fight against any outside forces to not disobey the Lord God. And we, as New Testament Christians, just like Old Testament Jews, we have responsibilities to God. God has a responsibility that only He can do and only He chooses to do it. No one coerces Him to do it. He desires to do it. But then He lays responsibilities upon ourselves. He does the impossible and even in our responsibilities, we're to do them by the life of the Spirit of God living in us. So it's not even us. We still can't take the credit. If we know ourselves, if we know what we're capable of, if we have truly repented and we know what we're capable of, we would never, ever try to take credit for anything we say or anything that we do. We know that it is the love, the mercy, the grace of God extended to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. But that does not negate the reality that God has a responsibility that He has laid out before us. And I want to share that because I believe that that's why the church in the West is so backslidden, so dead, false. I mean, every negative adjective that you can possibly think of to put upon false Christians and false Christianity, I believe it comes from this false concept, this false ideology that all you have to do is just believe on Jesus and say this prayer or just believe on Jesus. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. But all that language goes directly against the very teachings of Jesus and his apostles. I believe that every single one of us that claims to be a Christian, every single one of us that declares that we are blood-bought and born again, we need to, in this hour, this late hour of human history, we need to do as Paul the Apostle penned to the Romans, and that is, let God be true and every man a liar. We have to cast aside doctrines of men that have so strategically let us down 
their theological biases that have created this massive deception for multitudes. For multitudes. And I want to start with Jesus. I believe that um, starting with Jesus is so vital. Moses declared that God will rise up a prophet like unto him, and then Moses said, hear him. And those that don't will be cut off. God would deal with, God would judge if they don't hear him. That prophet is Jesus Christ. So we should always start with Jesus on any given subject, topic. We should always see what Jesus says about it. And then we should go to the apostles. And then from there, we should see if they use or if they quote any Old Testament scriptures. And when they do, we should go back to those Old Testament scriptures and interpret those Old Testament scriptures the way Jesus and the apostles we're understanding it or we're interpreting it. We should always start with Jesus, then the apostles, and go back to the Old Testament. We should never neglect the words of Jesus, the words of the apostles, or the prophets of the Old Testament. We should not neglect not one word from God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Every single word, every single letter, every jot, every tittle has been inspired by God and has been protected preserved, that is, by God for us. We need to be faithful stewards of God's word. So go to Matthew chapter 10 as we kick off this. Probably do two messages on this particular topic that I'm calling a disciple's responsibility. So this is a disciple's responsibility part one. This is huge. I highly encourage you to take the acronyms DR, has for, which stand for Disciples Responsibility, and as you read through your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. As you read through your Bible, when you see that God is putting a responsibility on His creation, on His people, whether it be the Jews or the church, Christianity, put a DR next to it because that is a responsibility that God is placing on us. And then I'm going to show you how we are to prayerfully seek God for Him to fulfill those responsibilities in our life by His Spirit and not leaning upon our own understanding or leaning upon our own flesh, but seeking God and crying out to God to fill us with this Holy Spirit to fulfill these things in our lives for His glory and for the glory of His Son and so that we could be that light in the earth. It is vital. So go to Matthew chapter 10. We'll start in verse 32, I believe, Matthew chapter 10. Oh man, starting... In verse 22, all the way through, probably verse 16, rather, verse 16, all the way through the rest of the chapter is just uh, um, a martyr's theology, if you would want to call it that. But I just want to read from Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 31. Fear ye not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. 
But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. So, I mean, just right there, you see clearly from verse 32 and 33 that we have a responsibility to endure whatever it is we have to endure, the temptations of this world, the temptations of our flesh, mortifying the deeds of the flesh and being crucified onto the world and not um, um, coming uh, or forsaking or turning our backs or denying Jesus Christ in the time of persecution or for material things or for, for carnal lust. We must remain faithful and confess the, the Lord Jesus Christ and not deny him. And if we remain faithful, he will not deny us before his Father in heaven. Jesus goes on and says, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Are you going to compromise with your family members that turn on you because you're standing for Jesus Christ and because they hate Jesus and they hate his standard and you're a light bearer, you're, you're walking out that standard and they hate you for his namesake? Don't, don't take it personal and think that they're hating you for you. But are you going to get to the point to where you, you give in? To temptation, you give in to loneliness? Because that's, what, that's, the, that's a natural outcome of living a righteous life? Or are you going to remain faithful and you're going to continue to confess with your mouth and with your life, more importantly, that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? Verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. How many times have you been told that there's nothing you can do to be found worthy of the Lord? Jesus is clearly telling you what you need to do. Or he's clearly telling us in this passage what we can do to not be worthy of him. And that is to love father and mother more than him. To love our, our, our children more more than him, to, to forsake taking up our cross and following after Jesus Christ. If we forsake those things, if we don't do those things, then we're not worthy of him, beloved. Do you see when false teachers, a false teacher is someone who teaches directly against Jesus Christ. A false teacher is someone who is saying the opposite of Jesus or the prophets or the apostles, men who were fully inspired by God, as the King James Bible says, holy men of God, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, penned these words for us. And anyone who speaks contrary to what they spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are functioning under a false spirit and are proving themselves to be false teachers or false prophets. It is our responsibility that we love Jesus Christ supremely above our mother, our father, our children, our spouses, and our own lives also. You can look at Luke 14, 26 has a parallel passage to this. It is our responsibility as disciples of Jesus Christ to take up our cross and to follow him daily, daily. 
Go with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. John 14, 15. The only way you can get around this teaching that I'm going to share is to bring up a false teaching that directly opposes the words of Jesus and his apostles. Or explain them away. To say, yeah, but. And I pray for you that you don't do that. That you let God be true and every man a liar, including ourselves. Don't believe anything I say. Go and verify everything that I'm saying through the scriptures. Through the scriptures. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. What's the proof of our love? We keep his commandments. That's your responsibility as a disciple. That is a disciple's responsibility to keep his commandments. And by keeping his commandments, we prove our love for him. Period. How are you going to explain that away? Why would you want to explain that away? If you want to explain that away, it's because you have an addiction to something that is contrary to the will and the way of God. A secret sin, an open and upfront sin that you know of, but you're not willing to forsake because you love it more and you love Jesus. You're not saved, beloved. Or you're backslidden. Or you've fallen from grace. Look at verse 21. Again, verse 21 is the disciples' responsibility. Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, that word keepeth is in the continual tense, meaning it has to, uh, it's an experience that has to have taken place in your life somewhere in the past, and it must be a present reality, and it must continue into the future. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So before Jesus will love us, before we'll be loved of the Father, and before he'll manifest himself to us, what do we have to do? We have to keep his commandments, and we have to continually keep his commandments. And by doing so, we prove our love to him. Now, listen. God has already shown his love for us while we were yet sinners by sending his son to die for us. But now that Jesus Christ has died for us, he is calling us to an obedient love-faith relationship. He is calling us to an obedient love-faith relationship. And again, it's not in our own strength. It's by the life of the Spirit of God that has been given unto us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the love, the mercy, and the grace of the Father. Verse 22, Judah said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and will make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. So the very things that Jesus is saying, he turns around and says, 
These aren't just my words. These are the words of the Father. If we keep his words, if we keep the commandments of Jesus Christ, that's how we know that we are in an obedient love-faith relationship with the Father and with the Son. And they, the Father and the Son, began to reveal themselves to us through their spirit, through the word, through the time, our time of prayer. We see them answering our prayer. We began to experience God, the Father, and, and God, the Son, having fellowship with us through answered prayer, through speaking to us through His Word, giving us peace. Not a peace of this world, a peace that surpasses this world. Experiencing the love of God that is shed abroad upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit which is given to us. These are experiences, ongoing experiences, for disciples of Jesus Christ, but all true disciples are faithfully living out the responsibilities that have been given to them. And if you really, really think about it, if you're a true disciple, and if you think about it, it's almost like a natural thing because of the Spirit of God living in you, who is prompting you, who is leading you, who is guiding you, who is wooing you, who is stirring you. It almost has a natural thing. The first church, the first century church, didn't have the New Testament writings. They probably didn't even have the Old Testament writings. We can almost guarantee that of the Gentiles, that they didn't even have the Old Testament writings. So these, these Gentile Christians were full of the Holy Spirit and were living in an obedient love-faith relationship with the Father and the Son by the Spirit that was given to Him. And that's still God's desire. That's still God's way in our day. But how much more should we in these the 21st century, how much more should we be further ahead? Because we have the Word of God. We have His divine written will for us. And we have His divine Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead has been given unto us so that we can live faithful lives to bring glory to the Father and to the Son. So it's clear from the words of Jesus, and this is just this is just a sample of the responsibilities that Jesus lays out for us in Matthew 10. We, we must not deny the Lord Jesus Christ, or else he'll deny us to the Father. We must love him supremely above mother, father, spouse, children, our own lives, and we must bear our cross and follow him, or else we won't be worthy of him. And we prove our love for him by keeping his commandments. We prove our love for him. And the Lord will manifest himself to us. The Father will show his love to us. And they'll come and make our abode in us. They'll come and make us their dwelling place. Beloved, when God tore, or when, when the, the Holy Spirit rent the, the, the curtain and the the temple, when Jesus gave up the ghost and he, the Lord rent the, the curtain in the tabernacle, the temple from top to bottom. God was done with that temple, which was nothing more than a type and a shadow because the fulfillment would come on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the body of Jesus Christ. And we would become that temple where God would abode 
we became the tent of God. When we got born again and we got filled with the Holy Spirit, we were immersed in the Holy Spirit. We became the tent of God. And you are no longer your own. You've been purchased with a price. And that price is far greater than silver and gold. That price was the precious blood of the Lamb of God who came to take away your sin, who came to release you from your sin, from both the guilt of your sin and from the power of sin so that you can now live in obedience to the Father and to the Son by His Spirit living in you. And He can make His abode within us. Beloved, this is a beautiful thing, and it's been so neglected because of false teachers coming up with their own false teachings because they're trying to grow their ministries, they're trying, they're trying to grow their businesses at the expense of souls being deceived and being sent to hell. These men are hirelings. They're wolves in sheep clothing. They're making merchandise of the Lord's people in the name of the Lord. And their damnation is just. Their damnation is just. Go with me to the book of Ephesians. This is probably one of the greatest examples of a disciple's responsibility. And when I say disciple's responsibility, I you can you can term that as true Christianity, true church, um, and a disciple's responsibility as well. But the book of Ephesians. For quite some time, I don't know who penned it, who started it, but um, it's been divided in three sections. The first section is the believer's experience of being seated in heavenly places with Christ. So the first section, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is the believer's position being seated with Jesus Christ. The second section starts in chapter 4 and runs through uh, uh, into chapter 6, and that's the believer's walk. And then the last section of Ephesians, chapter 6, is the believer's warfare. Um, I believe Watchman E said it this way, book of Ephesians, three sections, sit, walk, stand. And it is crazy for anybody to put an expectation on someone that has not yet been seated with Christ to walk as a Christian, or to stand as a Christian, because you can't walk until you've been seated. You can't stand until you have faithfully been seated with Christ and you have been faithfully walking with Christ. It's, that, it's, it's an essential order. Being seated with Jesus Christ is the enabling power that we need to be able to walk as Christ would have us to walk, to be imitators of Jesus Christ. And now being faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ and walking as Christ would have us to walk, now we can stand against the wiles of the enemy. So it is crazy, ludicrous, false Christianity to call people to a walk or to a stand, a warfare, when they haven't been seated. But it is just as wicked, just as evil, to call people to a warfare or to stand against the wiles of the devil when they're not walking. They may have been seated and they may have experienced that being seated with Christ, but if they're back in their sin, if they've gone back to drunkenness, which many, many American Christians think it's okay, and they're false Christians, that they can get drunk on weekends, Friday night, Saturday night, cussing, 
throughout the week at work. I can't tell you how many quote-unquote Christians I come across with at work, other places, cussing like crazy, and then they try to say they're Christians with no conviction whatsoever that they're spewing filth, curse words out of their mouth. I've even had one false Christian try to tell me that I was calling them cuss words, but they're not cuss words. And I settled that argument by just asking, can you talk like that at work? Has a representative for your company talking to customers? Would your boss be okay with you talking like that to your customers? No. Well, if your boss has enough sense to know that that kind of language isn't acceptable in the workplace, then let me tell you that God is beyond your boss's ability. He is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is transcendent. Quit playing games with the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Today is the day to repent, brothers and sisters. Today is the day to repent. Are you seeing what's going on in the world? Are you seeing that they're pushing every wicked, vile agenda down our throats? They're leading us down a path of genocide with this false pandemic? Not saying that the virus isn't real. My family and I had the virus. But they're definitely exploiting it to the highest degree. We are in the last hours of human history. And we are going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. And if you don't believe that, then you need to reread your New Testament on your knees, praying through each page, asking God to convict you, to convince you, and to convert you. So back to Ephesians, sit, walk, stand. So if you've been seated with Christ, are you walking with Christ? 1 John uh, 2.6 says, if ye, go to 1 John 2.6, I don't, I don't want, I'm serious when I say, don't believe anything I say, but verify everything I say. 1 John 2.6, one of the scariest verses in the Bible. He that said he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. You know why people don't preach or people don't like this type of message or this type of these type these the, these scriptures about a disciple's responsibility or scriptures that give a clear evidence of a true Christian or true Christianity or a true church? You know why they don't like it? Because they test you. They test your very confession. The Christian church of our day is like the Jews of Jesus' day. They were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them. That is exactly what we are seeing in Western Christianity. Honoring God with your lips on Sundays for an hour and a half, two hours, but proving that your heart is not with God the rest of your life. When you leave that place that you call church, it's not a church. It's a man-made building. We are the church, beloved. God didn't destroy a temple and depart from that temple so that he can go and house himself in another temple, another building. It's us. We the people. We are the temple. We are the body of Jesus Christ. But here in Ephesians, 
chapter 4, we have a disciple's responsibility. Literally, it starts um, from chapter, I could even kind of throw in chapter 3, verse 16, starting from there all the way through to chapter 6, because even our stance against the enemy is our responsibility. We have to be strong in the Lord. We have to be strong in the power of His might. We have to put on the whole armor of God. We have to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's our responsibility. God will never do for you what He has called you to do. And God will never expect you to do for yourself what He Himself can alone do for you. And while I strongly see that so much of the Bible is prophetic, so much of the Bible speaks of end-time prophecy, I see it everywhere. I think um, I'm going through a study from Genesis to Revelation that covers like a total of 254 chapters of the Bible, not verses, 254 chapters of the Bible dealing with the end times. It's huge. But I saw years ago that so much of the New Testament writings and so much of Jesus' teaching and so much of what the prophets declared in the Old Testament has to do with our conduct as believers, as children of God, as being ambassadors of the Most High God. It's dealing with our conduct. So Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, and Three quarters of chapter three is talking about our being seated, our positioning. But man, chapter 316 all the way through four, five, six is dealing with our conduct. And it's some of the strongest language that the New Testament has for us. And to gloss over it, to deny it, to, to ignore it, to explain it away is what has created this false church in America and false Christians. And it's not my desire to try to point out all the false teachers and all the false teachings and all the false Christians. My desire is to help people have their eyes opened up so that they can make an honest decision based upon what the scriptures are saying as to what is the true Christian faith. What is the true Christian faith? So many people think that grace is a one-time thing. You only have, God shows us grace one time, we're good, we're sealed forever. But have you ever taken the word grace and studied it out through the entirety of the New Testament, everywhere it's used, in context, not just in the verse, the whole paragraph, the whole passage, the whole chapter if necessary. Have you ever done that? Did you know that every time Paul opens up his letters, his greetings, he says, grace and peace be with you, and then he ends his letters with grace be unto you? Grace was never a one-time thing. It was never, ever treated as a one-time thing. And grace was, ne was never viewed or looked at as, as a license to continue to sin. As if now that you receive this grace for salvation, all of a sudden you're okay. It, it, it's, that's, no one ever thunk it for the first 300 years, if not longer. 
It's the false teachers. It's the false Christians. It's the false groups that were teaching such false teachings as once saved, always saved. Ephesians chapter 5. So uh, let's actually, um, let's start in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and verse, we'll start in verse 22. Actually, we'll start in verse 20, because verse 20 is the beginning of a new sentence. Ephesians 4.20 says, But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. So the truth is in Jesus. The truth is not in John Calvin. The truth is not in John Wesley. The truth is not in George Whitfield. The truth is not in John MacArthur. They may have truth. They may share a lot of truth. They may walk in truth. They may be great examples of truth. Some of them, not all of them, definitely not all of them. But the truth, beloved, the totality of truth is in Jesus, in word, in demonstration, in totality, is in Jesus. Let us go to the man Christ Jesus, the risen Lord, who sits at the right-hand side of the Father, and they can make intercession for us. And come and, be, and learn of him. Come and be taught of him. Verse 22. Here's disciples' responsibility. That ye put off concerning the former conversation. Remember, conversation, the old King James is speaking of manner of life. So, that you put off concerning the former manner of life, which is the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Do you see that you not only have a responsibility there, but if we have a responsibility, we obviously have the capacity to be angry and sin not. And we also have the capacity and the decision, the choice to not let the sun go down upon our wrath. Neither, neither give place to the devil. We have that ability not to give place to the devil. This foolishness of blaming the devil, blaming demon. No, why don't you blame your flesh? And when you come to realization that it's your flesh, crucify it. Because that nonsense won't pass in the presence of a holy and righteous God. Let him that stole steal no more. So if that's true of that sin, stealing, then how... How can it not be true of adultery, of fornication, of drunkenness? It is. It is. God is not a respecter of person. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Well, listen, if you want to say that cussing isn't corrupt communication, well then, I don't know what genre of language you would put the F word and B words and all those other filthy, corrupted words that are clearly corrupted communication. But that which is good to the use of the of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That's a very interesting phrase there, because if we've already been redeemed, but we're also looking forward to a day of redemption, beloved. 
Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Be ye their followers of God as dear children and walk in love. We're being called, that's our responsibility, is to be followers of God as his children and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us, has an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, has become a saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, no whoremonger, that includes those that claim to be Christians but are still whoremongers. It says, no whoremonger, nor jesting, which are not convenient. I'm sorry, nor whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you. Let no man deceive you. Beloved, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things... Cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. If you are living in those sins mentioned from verse 3 all the way down, don't be deceived. Because of those things, God's wrath is coming and you are a child of disobedience and you will suffer the wrath of God. You will suffer the wrath of God. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. If you are doing these things, the church of Jesus Christ isn't even supposed to be partaking with you until you repent and you show forth fruits of repentance. Then and only then shall you be received. For ye were, past tense, past tense, ye were sometimes darkness, but now, present tense, are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Look at that. Pay attention to that past tense language. Ye were. You can't still be in darkness and say you're a Christian because a Christian is someone who is no longer in darkness, has been delivered. That's what salvation is. It's being delivered, saved out of something and into something, saved away from someone and into someone, saved out of darkness into light, saved out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Being, no longer being a child of Satan, a child of the devil, a child of wrath, but now a child of God. You can't be both. There is no fellowship with light and darkness. There is none. You're either darkness or you're light. Verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. So listen, there was a time that homosexuality was in secret. It's now being shoved down our throats in the United States of America. To the extent that now transgenderism and all kinds of isms are coming out of that unnatural sexual sin that was once in secret, 
used to be in the closet. There's a reason why it was in the closet. There's a reason why it was secret because it's shameful because it's not natural. A man and a man cannot produce. A woman and a woman cannot produce. Therefore, it's unnatural. That's why they're so angry because they can't do what a man and a woman can do. But listen, a man and a woman unmarried having fornication, committing fornication in the eyes of God are, gonna, are children of disobedience and are going to come under the wrath of God equally. They're both going to be judged by God as evildoers, as sinners, as those that love their pleasures and their unrighteousness more than loving God. So I'm not sitting here and trying to bash one group against another. I'm calling all to repentance. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you're sleeping with your boyfriend, you're in sexual sin, you need to repent. If you're a homosexual, if you're a lesbian, you're in sexual sin. You need to repent and you guys need to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and be cleansed by his blood and be filled with the Holy Spirit because the day is coming. The day is drawing very near where God will judge all unrighteousness through his resurrected son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will bring all things that are in darkness and that are hidden into the light for judgment. Peter says that the righteous, if the righteous are scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner be found? Away with this false teaching that Christians are, are sinners just forgiven. If you are a sinner, then you're not forgiven because you don't understand the, 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 the truth of the word forgiveness. But moreover, more importantly, you haven't experienced forgiveness because forgiveness is a literal release. It's Jesus releasing us from our sin. That is both the guilt and the power thereof. So if you are still in sin, then I hope this message not only makes you very uncomfortable, but I hope this message, beloved, I hope this message convicts you. I hope that this message by the power of the Holy Spirit convinces you. And I hope that you'll be converted by the true grace of God. Go with me to the book of Titus right quick. Titus. Because this is the true grace of God in action. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation. There it is. The grace of God. What brings salvation? The grace of God. Not man's work, not man's righteousness, but the grace of God. But what kind of salvation? We're taught in America that it's a salvation from, from hell into heaven. Nowhere in the context is, is grace used in that fashion. Listen. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. What is God's grace that brings salvation? What has it done? It's appeared to all men. Not some men, false Calvinist teaching, but all men. And what does it do? Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope, that is the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See that? Jesus is our great God and our great Savior, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Only he could purify a sinful people, a polluted people, 
Only He could purify us. But He's purified us unto becoming not just zealous of good works, but becoming His peculiar people that are denying ungodliness and are denying worldly lust and are living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world and are looking not for a great America again, no, God forbid, but are looking for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, if that describes you, then you have been saved by grace and you are continuing in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if that does not describe you, then I call you to repentance and a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, I hope that you would see the scriptures differently from this day forward. I hope that you would recognize that you have a responsibility, has a blood-bought Christian. Until next time, grace and peace. In Jesus' name, Godspeed.